I'm Kirk Harnack. On This Week in Radio Tech, it's Tom Ray, Chris Tarr, and Chris Tobin. We're talking rising floodwaters, the public file, more audio processing, and the public airwaves. <laughs> Here we go. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Radio Tech, episode 82, recorded May 11, 2011. Transmitter Sharks. This episode of This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Axia Audio and the new Radius IP Audio Console. Feature-rich, affordable IP Audio Consoles from Axia on the web at axiaaudio.com. It's time for This Week in Radio Tech. Hi, I'm Kirk Harnack, your host. You've tuned into the show where we talk about everything to do with radio technology, and that means uh, audio, and whether it's high-fidelity audio or just getting some audio from here to there, the transmitter, antennas. We even talk about receivers, and, yeah, of course, we talk about the other things that radio stations are doing, like uh, streaming and, and some metadata to go along with that streaming, contesting and things like that. we got a lot of things to talk about, and occasionally we actually have guests on the show who know what they're talking about. But for this episode, you're just going to have to put up with us. Uh, as I said, I'm Kirk Harnack. I'm employed uh, full-time by the folks at Telos Omni and Axia. I'm so glad they keep me around. But also on the show with us, uh, one of our co-hosts is Tom Ray from the Hudson Valley of New York. Hello, Tom. Greetings, Kirk, and how are you doing tonight? Um, lovely. What's up with you? Uh, well, I'm the uh, VP of Engineering for Buckley Broadcasting, WOR Radio, in New York City, which is about 50 miles uh, south of where I'm sitting right now. Uh, it's been a beautiful last couple of days in New York, and uh, looking for, certainly happy that spring is finally here. <laughs> Me too. You know, here in uh, Nashville today, it got up to 92 degrees. Spring is definitely here. Now, you're, how, how far are you from the river? You know, we've heard about the flooding down there. We, uh, Nashville's a good three and a half, four hour drive from the Mississippi River. But I have a daughter who lives just a half a mile from Mississippi River. She's okay. Um, and uh, some other relatives that live pretty close, but, the, but they're all okay. I did see, you know, I've got a radio station in Cleveland, Mississippi, which is about where the cresting is going on now. But Cleveland's in from the river 15 miles or so. Greenville, Mississippi. Um, um, we're leasing some radio stations there, and they, they got some trouble there. Uh, the casinos are all overrun with water in Greenville, Mississippi. So that's a problem there. I don't know about the Tunica casinos. I haven't seen uh, any stories about those. But, yeah, the, in fact, we've got some uh, water pictures coming up in just, just a few minutes. Let's uh, move on and also introduce, uh, also from New York, New York City, Manhattan, it's Chris Tobin. Hey, Chris. Hello, Kirk. Tom, how are you this evening? Hey, what's up in your world? Uh, not much broadcast technology for the CBS radio stations here in New York. Uh, 3 a.m.s, 3 f.m.s, and uh, right now, as Tom pointed out, the weather has been very, very nice, very uh, moderate. I think uh, next couple of days will be sunshine and warmth, and then the rain rolls in on the weekend. Bad, how's bad the, uh, uh, Tom, how's the forecast? Like I should be asking you, I'm the meteorologist, right? How's the forecast <laughs> for the, for, for the, uh, w, for the SBE picnic? Any, any uh, actually, I haven't looked at it that far out. It's it's about it's two weeks from uh, from well from tomorrow. So, um, not quite sure. Hopefully, that should, it's be, gonna no, that should be no problem to forecast. <laughs> but 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 you know, even in uh, in years where it's done some yeah, done a little bit of rain, done a little bit of sprinkling, not a problem. We just go into the garage and uh, party there. There you go. All right. Hey, also with us from Muckwanago, Wisconsin. It is the cheap top, uh, top hootenanny engineer for uh, the intercom stations. Hey, it's Chris Tarr. Hey, Chris. Hi there. You know, I always, I always laugh when we go New York City, New York City, McGuanago, Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, rock, rock into heartland here. Uh, I am the uh, director of engineering for intercoms radio stations in Milwaukee and Madison. Uh, I'm also a uh, uh, co-founder of uh, the virtual engineer at broadcastengineering.info. And uh, let's see, I uh, got some storms rolling through here tonight. Actually, just lost power just before the show started. Fortunately, I have a UPS, so we stayed in line. Uh, but let's see, my day was uh, was turning on a new Burke lady up at a transmitter site. 
I got a new remote control, and I always love putting those in. They're so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, I have never gotten to use uh, any remote control that had a female voice. You referred to it as the Burke Lady. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah, well, you know, she actually has two names. The Burke Lady is what we call it, you know, the, the engineers call it. My wife calls it the transmitter lady uh, because, you know, it'll call at 3 in the morning, and she'll answer the phone in the female voice, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, my wife, hey, it's it's the transmitter lady. Get the phone. Uh, somebody actually it was yesterday. I, I had posted a picture on Facebook. I had it all, you know, decked out, all labeled, and everything. And and somebody went, oh, that's so nice looking. And I said, yeah, it looks nice until you plug it into a phone line and it calls you at two in the morning. <laughs> hey, hey Chris, just just Chris, don't leave the programming manual out. I had it. Uh, had a friend. <laughs> Uh, no, I had a friend at a station once, the overnight jock got bored one night, he left the programming manual out, so he reprogrammed the message and purposely tripped an overpower alarm. Oh. And when the guy answered the phone, what he got was, the oral exciter is hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're, we're talking, about, those of you who uh, aren't experienced with these things, we're talking about uh, remote controlling systems for transmitters. And a common way to uh, to control them is by dial-up telephone or, you know, by cell phones. You just you make a phone call to them, and they can call out to you with, uh, you know, spoken words uh, based on, you know, that, that uh, appropriate. They tell you what's going on, more or less. Uh, famously, one of the first uh, speaking remote controls, I suppose, was the, the sign system RFC-1B. And, uh, ones that have the uh, Three Stooges sound effects. Yes, John Payton apparently was a Three Stooges <laughs> fan. John was the inventor, designer of, of that box. And uh, they had all kinds of, you know, nyuk, 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 things like that, it would say. My goodness. Um, um, yeah, we've, we've programmed a few funny things to say in, in ours as well. Uh, I, in fact, you remember the early version of the science systems RFC-1B? It had a voice that was not so intelligible, right? It, um, it was, uh, and I, I wish I knew the right words to describe it. It was definitely, a, I, I want to say... Uh, monomic, but that's not the right word. Maybe somebody in the chat room would know uh, what I'm talking about. But it was it was uh, a voice that was very much computer created, and not a, any any similarities with the human spoken voice were kind of coincidental. Even though oh, it was it were. was very very monotone. Hello, this is the RFC. There you go. Yes, yeah. it was it was monotone, and so uh, I installed a, uh, one of these remote controls in Tennessee, small town, at a small black gospel station, um, and. Um, and I, and I built them a new control room, built them a new transmitter site, and the place was was really, it was, I mean, for a small town station, it was just hot. I mean, they, they really liked it, uh, except they didn't like the remote control. Once in a while, it would call in, uh, I told, showed them how to call uh, to it, and once in a while, it would call in with something being wrong, and uh, <laughs> I came back for a visit one time, and the morning guy says, uh, Mr. Harnack, he said, um, uh, we can't understand what dude is saying. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, I know what it's saying, and I don't understand what it's saying. Exactly. That's, yeah. I have a hard time understanding him, too. Well, then, not, not too long after that, uh, Sign came out with a, a chip replacement that gave it a voice that was you know, that is still the voice they use today, and it's much more intelligible. I had three stations at once that uh, had those things, and one was Curly, one was Larry, and one was Mo. Oh. And the phone would ring, and my wife would pick up the phone, and she'd go, Larry's calling. Okay, I know which I know which station that is. <laughs> you know, the the Burke really did Burke, the Burke really did a good job with the voice on the uh, on the Arc 16s. I mean, the 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 Burke lady is very uh, very intelligible, very natural sounding. In fact, I think when they they first released it, they called it natural voice, and it's it's very intelligible, and you can program your call letters in, and you know. So I know immediately because I've got about five of these, so <laughs> I need to know right away which one's calling me. Uh, so it, you know, they do a pretty good job with it now. But yeah, those those early versions of the remotes were really you know. Yeah, you might as well just drive out to the transitor site and take the readings because you don't know what they're saying. Hey, we're going to get into uh, the, the meat and potatoes of our show here in just a minute. I want to tell you that this episode of This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Netflix, where you can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, your Mac, or your TV instantly. Plus, you can get DVDs by mail in about a business day. For your three free 30-day trial, not that everybody on listening and viewing this podcast isn't already on Netflix. If you're not, pay attention here. This is for you. For your free 30-day trial, uh, go to netflix.com slash twit, and you'll get a free 30-day trial 
of Netflix. And a little bit later on the show, we're going to have a few picks for you from the engineers of the Torts podcast. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Axia Audio and the new uh, Radius IP Audio console. And uh, it is affordable, folks. It is under $6,000, and uh, you can probably get a discount on that, too. So check it out on the web at axiaaudio.com. And uh, look for the uh, look for the new IQ console, which is now shipping, and the Radius console as well. We'll tell you more about that a bit later on. Okay, guys, I've got a couple of uh, e emails here to check in. Yes, we get letters. Oh, we get letters. And here's one I'm here. I thought everybody would be interested in, in uh, hearing about. This is from Jeremy. And Jeremy writes, Kirk, I just want to drop you a short note and say thanks for the great show on Twit. Further, Twit inspired me to study and pass a technician class ham license. I just passed. Yeah. All right. Congratulations. I, I, I'm not, I don't have his call sign here. Maybe that'll come along later. Uh, Jeremy just passed it yesterday. It was a, an old uh, interest that I had when I was in high school, and I didn't pursue it. Uh, the show is great. It's a great lineup of hosts. Each one provides a contrast. Okay. Uh, I really enjoy it. Best, Jeremy from Washington. Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy. Also, a regular uh, listener. In fact, he's been on the show before, I, I think. Didn't we? We had Peter on. Didn't we? Peter Smurden from uh, oh, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 Um, yeah, we did have it on. <laughs> regarding, uh, we did uh, on the um, on the uh, episode we did with Joey uh, of the, of the uh, episode called Palangi Joe uh, about Samoa. <clears throat> Peter said he enjoyed the discussion about broadcast processing and music mastering. Um, he says I regard modern radio processing as real time mastering. Kind of an interesting take on that. Mastering can be defined as Optimizing the audio for the particular medium, whether it's vinyl, CD, cassette, MP3, or AM or FM or, or TV, that's what uh, broadcast processing is about. It's preparing the audio for the, uh, for the transmission medium. That sounds pretty accurate. I like that. Does that work for you guys? Works for yeah. me. Yeah, well, it's, it's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, that's so exactly it, on target. And, and I, actually, that, that's... Peter, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, his statement there, you're preparing the audio for the medium that you're going to transmit it over. Um, this was kind of the subject of a, of a presentation that I did for uh, Omnia when, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who are using um, broadcast processors to process audio for their web streaming, for their Internet streaming. And, um, okay, th that'll work, but, you know, it can be better. It's kind of like, well, I use this AM audio processor for my FM. Well, okay, I'm not in stereo, uh, and uh, it doesn't allow for the 75 microsecond preemphasis curve, but, you know, there's audio on the air. That's what you get when you use a processor that's not meant for Internet streaming uh, or for a codec, for coded audio. Um, uh, to, to do that kind of job. And that's been the subject of a, of a, a couple of shows here. I just I felt like Peter's comment uh, would allow me to point out that if you're doing web streaming and you want that stream to sound as good as possible, you need to use an audio processor that uh, preps the audio for the um, interesting things that an audio codec does to the audio. Um, one of the examples that uh, I've used is, is um, you know, the, the process of AM amplitude modulation and the process of Frequency modulation. These are kind of one-dimensional processes. You know, we understand the math involved, and uh, you know, processor companies can build processors to make the audio fit best and get the most through that that medium and, and that uh, modulation and, and demodulation process. But audio coding is actually a moving target. So an MP3 encoder or an AAC encoder, or when you get down to something really efficient like an HEAAC V2 encoder. These guys, these encoders, are not simple one-dimensional mathematical processes. Uh, they're multi-dimensional. I mean, they, they change on the fly exactly how they're handling different parts of audio to squeeze the most, most benefit out of it. And if the audio processor in front of that takes at least some of that variability in, in the process into account, um, then the audio processor can you know, uh, prepare the audio and at least not let the codec have to work harder than it has to uh, to to code uh, code the audio and get the bits down to a very low low bit rate. That's something that's worth uh, at least chatting about for a second. I've kind of thrown down the gauntlet and said, hey, if you're going to process for you know streaming, use a processor that's meant for streaming because it it will make a difference. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, no, it will, and and uh, you know the same would go for an HD radio signal as opposed to or, or not as opposed to, but along with um, an audio stream. 
Um, one of the things that you generally don't find on a processor that's made for streaming is a, a clip control because you don't want to really harshly clip the audio because clipping causes uh, causes harmonics and that could confuse the codec and you could eliminate your primary uh, frequencies and end up with the harmonics and you don't want to know what that sounds like. That's that you know that's a real well, good point. In fact, that brings up what. Uh, um, people who design processors for, for coded audio have found out you don't want any clipping at all because clipping makes, as you said, makes harmonics, makes um, third and fifth and seventh harmonics of the fundamental. So it's just, it's just more spectra to code. And um, uh, you also want to have, um, it's, it's a good idea to have a, a decent balance of the lows, mids, and highs. Uh, uh, in fact, a great way to handle the audio, oh, I should point out, for AM and FM uh, broadcasting, we tend to to do clipping because we want to maintain a very precise and high modulation level. Uh, with coded audio, that really doesn't matter. You just don't want to go above zero dBFS. But uh, you know, it's it's not important to uh, have all the audio at a you know perfectly clipped level. So you use limiting, but you don't just use regular limiting. You can use look-ahead limiting, and look-ahead limiting, when done properly, um, can um, can give you a nicely controlled signal that still has some dynamic. Uh, punch in it. I'm sorry, about to interrupt uh, whoever was going to speak next. Seems like um, Mr. Tar, were you going to pipe up? Well, yeah, for, you know, when you're talking about processing for streaming or even, uh, for example, HD subchannels, uh, Omnia does this very well. Uh, you want to also uh, limit the bandwidth because you don't want to have audio out there that isn't going to get coded anyway if you're using a low bit rate sort of encoder. Uh, I know that uh, the Omnia 1 uh, has an adjustable bandwidth, uh, uh, almost like a shelving control on there so that you know if you're not you're not pumping in a huge amount of highs into a codec that really isn't going to be able to process that anyway and what happens is that also clears up a lot of the unnatural sounding artifacts from the codec trying to re-encode things that just never really existed in the first place it's trying to fake it and and recreate some things that really you know you're trying to cram all this you know 20 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag and if you just take a standard processor mm -hmm. and process it and try to cram it through uh, a low bitrate codec you end up with a whole lot of artifacts so one of the things uh, one of the tricks you do is you know obviously you roll off your audio all the highs and the lows just below uh, what the sample rate is, and that will also eliminate some of those artifacts. And, you know, streaming processors do that very well. You know, uh, you mentioned rolling off the highs, and, and uh, one place where this really comes into play is so many times people do um, uh, coding um, with a PC that's got a sound card of some kind. So it uh, doesn't much matter whether it's uh, an AES digital input or an analog input. Um, if you feed audio into a sound card and then you encode that audio later on and you encode it at a bit rate uh, uh, or the sampling rate of the encoder. It, you know, if, if you end up getting audio energy above the Nyquist frequency, that's considered that's half of the, of the sampling rate, uh, above the Nyquist frequency, you're going to end up with um, aliasing distortion. Um, uh, these, uh, um, you know, we ought, we ought to do a visual on this sometime, or you can you can go on Wikipedia and look up uh, 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 aliasing distortion. But you're going to end up with non-harmonically related products back in the audio. Uh, aliasing distortion is kind of acts like a mirror, and uh, or kind of it, it flips the, these these products back into the 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 range of audio uh, that is being coded that's below the Nyquist frequency, but it's not harmonically related to the audio that's there. And so you end up coding artifacts that sound nasty, that don't sound good at all. Well, how do you solve this? Well, if you rely on the low-pass filter in a typical PC sound card, eh, that doesn't work very well. Um, these, these, uh, any energy below the above, any energy above the Nyquist frequency of the system has got to be way, 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 way down, like 70, 80, 90 dB down. Otherwise it's going to get coded to some degree and that coding again not harmonically related to the audio it's just going to sound like junk up up there so you want to use an audio processor or an audio filter of some kind that's going to knock this uh this audio way 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 down above a given frequency like like whatever the nyquist frequency of the system would would be uh, and, and you know uh, yeah go ahead go ahead chris I was going to say, another thing we've discussed, too, before when, when processing for audio streaming and, you know, for HD codecs is sometimes less is more. Uh, you know, a lot of these these codecs, especially uh, an, you know, AAC-based codecs, rely on information that's 
kind of masked in the audio to do its thing. Well, if you process the heck out of that audio and, and you're basically feeding it a square wave, uh, the, the codec really doesn't have a lot to work with. It can't mask uh, what it needs to mask to reduce the bit rate, and you end up sounding pretty bad too. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people try to emulate FM radio processors. It's gotten better. You know, the, the audio processing has gotten better to where it sounds better with less. But, uh, you know, a lot of people take like a sound solutions and start cranking on the knobs. And, you know, what, what comes out on the other side is pretty bad. So always remember, too, you want to leave a little bit of dynamic range for the codec to work. This also has to do with the whole principle of uh, psychoacoustic encoding that um, that uh, these these encoders have uh, that they put to use, like MP3 and AAC and anything that's that's a lossy encoder. Um, uh, it's it's um, you know if you if you feed it energy across the entire band, how's it really going to throw any data out of that without sounding bad? Uh, and I'm I'm kind of oversimplifying the model here, but if if you think about um, if you think about using an MP3 encoder to uh, code silence well that's not too difficult you know it, it's not too hard to encode silence at 128 kilobits per second it, it can be done <laughs> uh, so take the other extreme where you have like a some song produced by phil Spector, right so it's this wall of sound uh how are you going to encode that how how is the encoder going to decide what is, what can the human ear uh not notice if it's gone and the answer is going to be, well, a lot, there's a lot more stuff that you're going to notice if it's gone than if you're going to notice that some silence is gone. So, um, uh, in, indeed, uh, codecs are best used with audio that's kind of natural, that's got natural dynamics. Now, there are, I, I got to say, there is a, an example of uh, uh, an Internet streaming uh, company that I think does a pretty good job uh, making their streams sound uh, punchy uh, and um, almost want to say loud and exciting, uh, and th that would be the folks at uh, at Goom dot com. We did uh, we did one of our shows from their studios uh, just across the uh, the the river from New York City. Just um, um, if you uh, go to uh, don't do it now, please <laughs> go to Goom dot com g o o m dot com, and you can listen to some of their streams. And these guys kind of do push it to the limit, but I think they're below that limit. The sound, songs sound very good. But if you yeah, if you want to be safe, sound good at low bit rates, uh, keep the audio simple, and there's no reason to just crank on it and crank on it. Chris, you guys, uh, Chris Tobin, you guys do a lot of streaming uh, there. You got some advice on code on uh, processing for that? Uh, yeah, we do a lot of streaming. Um, what I find works the best, is, uh, as Chris Tarr pointed out, is just uh, limiting the bandwidth. If you're on a very limited, say, HD2 or 3 carrier that you're not running very much uh, uh, data, uh, definitely shape the audio going in. I find that keeping the codex, uh, the input to the codex below their operating level, if, say, uh, minus 20 dB full scale is what they normally expect, I try to be about maybe 5 to 6 dB lower than that as my peak energy. And I find that the codecs tend to be a little more um, uh, friendly to encoding the audio. And I did some research, and I forget what paper it was. I think it was a Swedish company uh, talking about how, you know, the uh, perceptual coding, when you sort of not overdrive it, but just reach the, I guess it's, you know, the operating level or just above the operating level, it tends to, uh, you know, not create artifacts, but sort of sound strange. You know, you know that thing where we listen to audio processing, somebody goes, yep, that's it. That's what we're looking for. That's the sound. And you're going, yeah, I think I get what you're saying. I've been reading up on this stuff, and it seems to be the same in the perceptual coding world, unless, Kirk, you've heard otherwise. But I find running them just a little below their normal operating level works the best. I, I don't know why that would be. I haven't experienced that myself, but I haven't really played with it. I'm not sure if you go over, that sounds terrible if you try to. Um, uh, but I don't know why that would be, why it would sound better at a, a, a few dB below. Uh, the, I'm thinking the maybe, I'm oh, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's, it depends on our source material and how much peak energy it has, because I've um, recently been monitoring a lot of our audio uh, across the router with the DeRoe meter. And watching, I notice there's a lot of peak energy above the average lately on some of the material we're not getting in for, say, the music stations. And then the talk, it's just each voice is different. But I'm noticing there's a lot more peak energy where, where in the past I think we probably lost it in either the way we, we transported the audio. Uh, you know, even in the case of the radio lines, you know, if you had radio lines to your transmitter, not the Pulsecom um, APTX type, but the old fashioned copper, they were pretty much uh, like uh, phase scramblers when you think about it. So, yes, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of peak energy you never really got. So you used to be able to crank and do a lot of stuff. And I still have folks right here in town that from time to time still have their old copper lines and 
love the way their uh, their STL audio sounds across those compared to the you know clean crisp digital connections they use. You know what you know, I actually have, yeah. go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say another thing I found lately. Uh, we've been starting to put our uh, our AM stations on HD three channels, which are and we use pretty low bit rate because obviously they're, they're mostly talk. But uh, HD or I'm sorry, uh, AM radio processors such as the uh, the Optima ninety two hundred work very well for HD streaming because they they're made yeah. for the limited bandwidth of, uh, of of AM. So you can really you know narrow those down and and fit some audio you know fit audio into a uh, into an HD three stream at a very low you know 16 kilobit uh stream rate and sounds really really good uh, because it does a very good job of almost brick wall limiting or uh, rolling off audio filtering audio at those frequencies uh just because of the am occupied bandwidth specifications so i found that those actually work phenomenal for uh streaming talk formats on uh hd sub channels I would agree, and, and I, th I think that the, especially those uh, uh, the Optimod processors meant for AM uh, are really kind, uh, especially to male voice, uh, and make them sound quite good on AM. So uh, if you're looking for that kind of, of effect, you know that carries through very well in, into the uh, in, in, in the streaming. Chris Tar, you mentioned a moment ago. I'm not don't know if you said it accidentally or if you meant to. We were talking about rolling off the high end. So, so it's below any energy is below the Nyquist frequency, which is again half the sample rate. But I thought you I heard you say roll off the low end, and it was always my belief and, and experience that uh, hey MP3 any kind of coding handles bottom end just fine because there's so little work to do to encode that. Um, I found that 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 low end tends to sound fake when you when you do a lot of it and and radio people tend to overdo bass so uh, you know when streaming or doing hd i find that uh, I, I tend to roll off the bass a little bit i think it sounds a little tighter and a little uh you know a little more true when you do that it's a personal preference i don't think it actually the low end i don't think i think you're right i don't think it really affects encoding too much um other than because you're rolling off the high end it can really sound imbalanced if you don't uh compensate for that on the low end Ah, okay. All right. Sure. Yeah, so I, would, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. That balance, that's kind of an interesting concept there too. You know, if you're if you're rolling off the audio at say eight kilohertz or nine kilohertz or eleven kilohertz or some such to stay under under Nyquist, um, then if but if you if the low end is is processed, so you know, if you've got a male announcer with a deep voice, he's really kind of rumbling along there. And if you're if you're putting audio in that goes down to fifty five, sixty, sixty five hertz. And there's a lot of energy in that because it's been processed. Then, yeah, I can see how that would sound unbalanced, and you'd want to tone that down. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yep, it's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Hey, we're going to take a, a a break right now and talk about one of our sponsors, which is Axia Audio. And hey, at least two of my co-hosts here. Uh, are or have been uh, Axia users with some experience. So I want to uh, talk for uh, just a minute about a new product from uh, Axia, our sponsor, and that is uh, two, two new consoles that were introduced at the NAB show. Um, if you want to follow along at home, uh, turn your hymn books to uh, axiaaudio.com. That's axiaaudio.com uh, slash IQ, uh, or the other one, axiaaudio.com slash radius. And the uh, these consoles, the, the IQ console, we had this idea that, you know what, we've been building, um, I say we because I work for the company, we've been building uh, consoles now for a while. We started out with the Smart Surface, and there's uh, uh, several hundred of those out there in the world. In fact, Tom Ray, you've got some Smart Surfaces there at WOR, don't you? Yes, sir. We've got nine of them. And, nine? Uh, yeah, we've got nine. We've got nine. That's uh, where they went to. Yeah, we've got nine studios. They, uh, they work well. We've... Uh, and let's see, we've been in that studio facility now for six years, uh, believe it or not. And I think I've replaced a couple of button boards and one power supply. Okay, cool. They, they um, just sit there and run. So that's the smart service was the first console that uh, Axia made. Uh, the next one has been the Element console. And that's a very, very uh, uh, flexible console. That you can There's literally tens of thousands of, of combinations of modules and positions that you can build up a console. So if you're interested in the Element console, check out axiaaudio.com. It's very flexible and very powerful. But if you want to save some money, if you're on a budget, but you don't want to give up a lot of features, then check out these two new consoles from Axia, the IQ and the Radius. Um, 
the IQ comes uh, with uh, eight faders, and then you can add more faders to it. You can add uh, an expansion module to give you uh, eight more faders and even eight more faders. You can have up to 24 faders on an IQ console. If you need some telephone control, well, there's an expansion module that has six faders and a telephone controller that controls a new Telos phone system called the IQ6. Um, and there's also a panel that has uh, some control buttons uh, and six faders. So you can get these in different sizes. You can have eight or 16 or 14 or 24 or 22 or 20 faders, all different combinations. Uh, you get uh, OLED metering displays and OLED channel displays. Um, you get a little a rotary knob at the top of every channel strip that lets you set the gain or uh, select a new source. You get uh, you can you know uh, program your your which buses that you're feeding uh, any fader into. Um, the uh, the faders are really rugged. In fact, I'm not going to say they're waterproof, but they're water resistant because the the stem that comes down from the knob and goes into the fader. It doesn't go straight down into the fader assembly. It actually goes around the side and enters from the side of the fader assembly. You can see a picture of that on the uh, on the website. In fact, if you go to the uh, Radius console uh, at axiaaudio.com and scroll down a bit, you can see our smooth and silky um, uh, fader uh, assembly there. It's very, very cool. Well, uh, then the, the, the console, the IQ and Radius consoles, also do automatic mix minus. So you don't have any errors with uh, people making up mix minuses uh, live on the air. Uh, you're always going to have the correct mix minus going out. Well, hey, the uh, the IQ console starts at about eight thousand uh, dollars. You can get a twenty four slot, a twenty four fader console for under about twelve thousand dollars U.S. The Radius console is even more affordable. Instead of OLED meters on it, it uses LED meters. They're really quite sexy, uh, but they're not as expensive as the OLEDs. Um, and uh, the only thing about the Radius is you can have as many faders as you want as long as it's eight. The radius is eight faders. It'll never be any more. You cannot expand it, uh, but it's a very basic uh, audio over IP console for under six thousand uh, dollars. That includes the part that goes in the rack that has the built-in Ethernet switch with power over Ethernet. Uh, it has analog inputs, analog outputs, an AES input and output, and GPIO contact closures to run your tally lights or your CD player, your automation system. Uh, so it's fully networkable uh, with uh, other consoles in the Axia system. Uh, just want you to check it out. Um, check out the Radius. Check out the IQ. Uh, the IQ is shipping now. The Radius shipping later on this summer from Axia at axiaaudio.com. All right, guys, let's continue. I want to bring up a little bit of topical news here about this flooding that we've had. And Burke, uh, in the control room back in Petaluma, has a photos that he's going to, uh, to show us from a, a couple of transmitter sites in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Burke, if, uh, if I can wake you up, uh, have you got those for us? There we go. This is, oh, I want to oh. uh, mention, want to mention the website that uh, these are from. Uh, our friend Barry Mishkin at uh, thebdr.net. So you can see these pictures in, uh, in all their glorious color if you go to thebdr.net and, uh, and go to the story about this. So we're looking at, um, uh, yeah, some serious water here. Let's see. The transmitter site on your left, that's WDIA in Memphis. That's with the Mississippi River at 45 feet. That platform is 18 feet above the ground. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, these two pictures were taken by uh, Gary Condry of uh, Clear Channel in, in Memphis. Um, let's see, we scroll down to, uh, to the next one, and you see there, I'm following along at home here, uh, this, is, um, this is one of the WDIA uh, ATUs, yeah, the number one antenna tuning unit. Wow. It might take, might take three to five weeks for the water to go down. If we scroll down a bit more, uh, there we go. Here's the transmitter site of KWAM, K-W-A-M. Um, well, that's a station I used to do this engineering for, but not at this location. They built a new, much nicer location. But uh, this is uh, on May the 6th with the river at 46 feet. Wow. And we scroll down a bit more. There's uh, another, uh, there's some yeah, antenna. There's an isocoupler at the base of uh, this tower. Uh, Gary Condry took these as well. Uh, these are, again, part of the KWAM site. And then a bit farther down, there's a, a damage tower. This is not, uh, this tower was brought down on Friday, uh, April the 29th, and the station was moved to a different site. So this was, uh, this was taking it down intentionally. I wonder why. <laughs> That's the only thing wrong with it, really. It's called beam tilt. 
But other than yeah, that, it looks like your glass there, Kirk. Come on. <laughs> what's, what's wrong with this picture? Oh, my goodness. So, uh, you, you guys at your transmitter sites, you ever, are you, you're not in flooding areas, are you? Tom, well, what do you think? Yeah, with the WR site, uh, flood stage is nine feet. We're built up. Uh, we're we're twelve feet above swamp level, so uh, and I've seen the water in the last five years there. I've seen the water come up about seven eight feet, um, almost flood stage, but not over. Uh, and uh, not too far up the road, up in um, uh, Hasbrook and uh, not Hasbrook Heights, uh, Rochelle Park, New Jersey. Uh, back in 19, it was either 99 or 2000, Chris, when uh, when the central office there, the phone company central office flooded. Yeah, I think it was 2000. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah, that that was uh, that was in a 200-year flood stage, and for some reason they put the power supplies and everything else in the basement, and unfortunately, that central office is where the trunk lines from New York City come into Jersey. All of us uh, down in the Meadowlands with transmitters, I, actually anywhere in northern New Jersey, we had no dial tone. We had no ISDN, we had no uh, equalized service, we had no T1s, we had nothing. And when you came out of the Lincoln Tunnel, it was like going into no man's land. You pulled up your cell phone, zero signal. That was pretty scary. Oh, oh wow. Yes, yes. Huh. So, so Tom, uh, help me understand that the Meadowlands area, I've, I've been through there, I've been to your transmitter site. Wh where does that water come from? Is that, is that ocean? Is it brackish or is it some fresh water from a, from a uh, river? Uh, well, it, where we are, it's brackish, but uh, it, it is tidal there, and that tidal comes from uh, the uh, from uh, New York Bay, uh, which is actually the Atlantic Ocean that that comes in, and, and, and it's tidal there. So it, it it goes up and down. I mean, there are times of the day, um, you know, when the channel out in front of the building, there's nothing there except mud, and there are other times when it's three quarters full in in the culvert, and that's a that's a ten foot culvert down there. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of water that moves. Oh uh, yeah. So we yeah. Have, we, I, I've seen it. Our transmitter sites just down the road from Tom's and uh, I, we got through the same thing. It's, uh, <laughs> we have, we have fish, we have crabs, we have, uh, ducks, we have, uh, well, let's say I got three, um, three raccoons. Tom, you don't need to go to the grocery store before your, your picnic. You got all your food right there. <laughs> oh, I know. Exactly. Well, yeah, but unfortunately, we're right off of one of the, uh, uh, a, a place called Berry's Creek, and Berry's Creek is one of the most polluted waterways in the country, so I don't think I'd want to eat anything there. Mm. Mm. Well, at least the food will be well-preserved. Uh, this is true, but, but let me tell you, I, I, I mean, I, and I'm sure Chris's place over at 1010 Winds is the same as, uh, as our place. We had to, uh, I, I had to walk, actually walk out into the swamp last uh, summer for something, and this was the middle of July, and it was the dry season, and let me tell you, I was up almost to my knees at one point. I just, you stand on the mud, and you just go plunk and sink. That's it. Yes. Done. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Same for us. So uh, if, if you have a, a transmitter building that that has gotten flooded, where water's come in, water's uh, risen you know, above the floor and, and up into the, uh, let's say you've got a, well, I, you know, I guess transmitter designs are, are a bit different now. They used to have a, a lot of uh, high voltage down in, in the bottom uh, with rectifiers and, and high voltage transformers and, and such as that. Uh, what kind of, of repairs would you expect to have to make from a flooded transmitter site? What happens to the parts that, are, that get underwater? Well, in uh, one of our stations in our Hartford cluster uh, in, in Meriden, Connecticut, WMMW, AM, uh, we've got the transmitters um, and, and the equipment rack built up. Oh, they're a good two and a half to three feet off the floor because that site floods and actually is flooded right now. Uh, when the building itself floods, um, the phaser gets wet. And we generally have to drop power and go non-directional at that site uh, when that happens. But uh, yeah, you go in, you hose down the uh, the coils in the bottom, and you what? You mean you had more water? Oh yeah, just you have to clean it off. I um, thought water was but, the problem. But this site itself, um, this is a, a a site that we we bought the station. This station, the, the, this particular iteration of the transmitter site there was built in nineteen. 
Oh, I'm going to say 83, and I, I don't quite understand why the, knowing that there's electrical equipment in this building, why the town allowed it to be built the way it was at, at grade, you, you know, which is right at ground level, uh, especially since it's on leased town property because the, uh, they know it floods. There's, there's, a, there's a creek right there, and springtime, forget it. You get the snow runoff, and the, the place just, it, it's underwater. You, you, can, you can go out in a boat and go fishing if you want. It's, it's unbelievable. What if I told you that I had heard of a, an older Gates or Harris uh, FM transmitter with the uh, incoming AC power, the commercial um, three-phase, 240 volts, uh, basically on the bottom of the transmitter going through a fuse block on the bottom. What if I told you that I'd heard of a transmitter site where that was covered with, with uh, muddy water and the transmitter was still on the air? Does that make any sense? Mm, I suppose I could see that happening. I, I, I would doubt it, but uh, it wouldn't, it, you know, certain things wouldn't surprise me. It depends on what's in the mud. I mean, it could make a great insulator. It didn't make sense to me, but this is what I was told by somebody who we worked there before. Oh, yeah, we had six inches of water in the transmitter and it was on the air. I, actually, I'd be more worried about that plate transformer in there going uh, kabang. Uh, yeah, with water yeah. In it. Well, you know, some of the earlier model transmitters, the older transmitters, the bottom half was just the, the uh, transformers themselves. And the laminations on those, if you ever looked at some of the old ones before the PCP laws came into, <laughs> into play, um, it's very conceivable that the lower I, half, the lower six inches could probably be well insulated with the lamination and, and work. Because your bleeder I, resistors... I was, was going to say that. Yeah, the I, bleeder I resistors the and other thing, stuff yeah. were probably above. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I've had you know some of those older transmitters that old Collins, and yeah. you know the lamination on the uh, on the the transformers was pretty thick, and I would imagine you could probably get a good few inches of water in there, and and probably still be okay as long as it didn't come up over the terminals. I mean, those are pretty pretty stocky uh, transformers they had in there. Yeah, I had a Collins FM that I remember distinctly. The lower half of the cabinet was strictly transformers. The bleeder resistors were about midway on the side panel, and yeah, think, there was pretty much nothing on the bottom. Because when I would vacuum it out, I remember not worrying about breaking yeah. anything because there was nothing there. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, the one I had was a uh, eight thirty one. I think it was an eight thirty one D one. And yeah, I yeah. mean there is really nothing yeah. down there yeah. that. Yeah. So hmm. Kirk, it's very possible that uh, that rumor you think that may not be true could very well be true. Yeah. Uh, that would be that would be pretty pretty amazing, huh? Uh, I guess but those, like any flooding, you can have a lot of cleanup to do. If you've got wallpaper, uh, excuse me, if you've got wallboard uh, in your transmitter site, you know that's gonna that's gonna get mold. You're gonna have to cut the wallboard out and then replace that, uh, unless you get you know a mold mold infested transmitter site. Not probably the first place on the list of things to, of places to fix though, but uh, it's, it still could be important. And I've I've never had to clean up as long as I lived and worked near the Mississippi River. Somehow uh, I never had to clean up after uh, after a, a flood. Uh, not nothing serious. Hmm. Well, I, I tell you what, I sure feel for all the people on the Mississippi River. Uh, not only the ones you know losing their homes and such, but hey, broadcast engineers who are you know having to work overtime to keep getting the message out. Guys, we're going to take a quick break right now and hear uh, from the, our friends at uh, Netflix. Uh, this part of uh, this episode of This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Netflix. You know, Netflix delivers movies directly to your home, and that really does save you time, money, and hassle. Hey, I was getting the other mail from the mailbox uh, today anyway, and look what came in the mail, my, my next DVD. Now, of course, I, I stream, you know, movies uh, uh, off, uh, off Netflix, but um, here's one. Let's okay. I'll open it up here. You guys are wondering what the movie was. It's uh, seems like I got Raging Bull, the Collector's Edition, Part One. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize or Disc One. Didn't even realize that there's more than one disc. Uh, Robert De Niro won an Oscar for his portrayal of self-destructive boxer Jake LaMotta in Martin Scorsese's widely acclaimed biopic, which uh, paints a raw portrait of a tormented soul unable to control his violent outbursts. I, I can't wait. <laughs> raging, <laughs> raging bull. Hey, you can watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want, by streaming them. Uh, never any late fees or no due dates. In fact, I, I could, I could forget to mail this back for a year, and I wouldn't get a bill other than the usual monthly fee. And you know what? I think, uh, I think my daughter's probably gotten hold of a movie or two, and you know, end up under the bed or who knows where, 
Well, find them later. Oh, okay. this is why we haven't got any new movies yet. Got to send this one back. Uh, uh, Netflix uh, streaming pick of the week. Some movie that you can stream. Well, let's see here if, uh, if Kirk can look at his uh, instant streaming uh, queue and see what's... Oh, yeah. I've got to admit, I'm a fan of Reno 911. So you can stream... Uh, yeah. You can stream the episodes from 2003 to 2009, seasons one through six of Reno 911, created by Ben Garant, Carrie Kenny, and Thomas Lennon. Um, uh, the show is uh, uh, described as being goofy and raunchy. Yeah, I would say that's about right. Reno 911, available for streaming. Uh, Mr. Tar, do you have a, uh, a Netflix pick that you can stream? I do. Hot Tub Time Machine, starring oh. John Cusack. Oh, do, do you have to send no, the kids I, out of the room? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I, well, yeah, it's probably uh, a little more adult, yes. But a great movie, especially you know. Again, that's one of the great things about Netflix. I don't know that I, I'd go and and spend a lot of money to watch it. It was you know, it got a few stars. Was you know, not an epic by any means, but it's a fun movie. It really is, and especially if you're like me, growing up in the '80s. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of lot of references to the '80s, a lot of '80s music. And a lot of fun, and of course, John Cusack is is awesome in everything he does. So that's my pick: Hot Tub Time Machine. Mr. Tobin, do you have a uh, streaming Netflix pick? Uh, yeah, I have actually two. Because if you want to do comedies and have a great time laughing for an evening, you have uh, the producers, the original one with uh, Zero Mistel. You can oh, stream it in, in that, DVD. Yeah, that's in my queue, my instant queue. Yeah. Yes, and do Stripes because if you want a good laugh or just laugh it out, that's the fact, Jack. Just go for it. Stripes, that's right. What a great movie. And that's available for streaming. Tom, how about you? Blown up, sir. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you can stream this, but you mentioned the TV show before. Remember the TV program Police Squad with Leslie Nielsen? Oh, well, I thought it was a movie. Was well, it the, well he had three movies. Uh, no, uh, well, he had three movies, but this is the TV show. It only lasted oh, I love months. that. That was a great series. Oh, yes, and, that, I, it, and, there, yeah. and there's a DVD you can, I think you could stream it. Um, oh, DVD, only. Awesome. DVD only. DVD only. DVD only. DVD only. Well, that is get that I've just I just clicked and added that to my DVD queue. And you know what? Uh, don't tell my daughter, but I just moved that. I might move that up ahead that for Care Bears. Actually, <laughs> probably should. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, thanks to Netflix for uh, uh, sponsoring the show. You can go uh, online and get uh, 30 days free by going to uh, netflix.com slash twit. Netflix.com slash twit. Enjoy 30 days of uh, service for free. Sign up for your free trial right there. Thanks for very much for Netflix for uh, sponsoring this week in Radio Tech. And, if we, and we know everybody here is already a, 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 a member, client user of Netflix so you know you can buy you can buy a subscription for your, your mom your uncle uh, you know your 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 sister whatever you can your friend next door it's it's pretty cheap it's what un, under under nine dollars a month I think I, I, for the DVD I'm thinking of paying about nine dollars a month so check it out all right uh, onward with the program and we had a number of uh, other little things to uh, to chat about one of them was um, there's some uh, talk within the FCC about the public file the public file. You know, most folks don't even know that there's this thing called the public file. Um, and a lot of radio stations get in trouble for not keeping their public file up to date. Does it really do any good? Is it just a, a, a burden of paperwork that, that means nothing or next to nothing? Is it actually a really good way for the public to come and into the radio station and find out about how the station operates and how they're fulfilling the requirements of their license from the federal government? Or is it time for the public file to go? Um, what do you guys know about this uh, public file uh, controversy? Well, uh, see, seeing as the public file actually lives right outside my office, um, I've been at WR 14 years. In that 14 years, we've had exactly, besides the uh, state inspector, we've had exactly one person came in and asked for the public file. They had no clue what they were looking at. They had no clue what they were looking for. They looked through it and said, yeah, it looks like it's here, and they walked out the door. What do you think the so, person was trying to do? See if you had one because they heard maybe from somewhere that, hey, if you catch a radio station without the public file or if it's not organized properly, they can get in trouble? 
Well, that that was an a possibility. It was also during the license renewal per renewal period when we were uh, talking about it on the air. Um, but I mean, basically, if you look in the public file, I mean, there's there's not a heck of a lot that means anything. I mean, your license is in there. Well, you're you're required to keep that at the control point. Um, you've got stuff on on the political ads you sold. Yeah. Is that really necessary these in, in, in these days? Uh, letters from the public. Yeah, I, I, I mean, come on. You, you know, there's really besides the license licensing stuff, there's nothing really significant in there. If if our listeners care about this, you can easily go to Wikipedia and look up public file. Some of the things that you have to keep on file in this file that would be available to the public would be your station authorization. Uh, that says, hey, this, here's your license. Uh, applications and related materials. So if you make an application to the FCC, a copy of that has to go in there. Agreements with citizens. Not sure what that might be since we're all citizens. Uh, or if you're not a citizen, would that agreement not have to go in there? Contour maps. A political file. Uh, material relating to an FCC investigation or complaint. Equal employment opportunity file. Um, there's a, there's a uh, document called the public and broadcasting. And this document, even though it's available from the FCC, must also be in your public file. Uh, letters and email, emails from the public. Now, this is a little onerous, isn't it? I mean, what if you're Howard, well, not, well Howard Stern's not on, a, not on a, a license station. Oh, by the way, if you're not a licensed radio station, if you're a, a, a internet broadcaster, for example, Leo Laporte at the Twit Network, does he have a public file? No, he doesn't have to. But if you are licensed by the FCC, then you have to have a public file. Go ahead. I was going to take the devil's advocate side here. Uh, yeah. You know, we do the 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 airwaves are public; they're owned by the public, and I think we, in some way, we have to be held accountable to them. And you know, I, some of the some of the rules may be a bit onerous. Some of them sound onerous, but really aren't. Uh, you know, for example, the political file. All that is is it keeps us in check because again the way the rules state is you know if if one candidate comes in and i give him a rate of ten dollars i have to give a ten dollar rate to everybody every other political party or political person candidate that wants to to buy advertising which is which is fair but that's that's how you prove that is you have that information in the public file letters from the public if if something goes on and a lot of people are complaining about it I think the public has a right to see that. I mean, instead of us saying, oh, nobody said a word about it, you know, trust us. Uh, so, you know, I think some of that stuff is legitimate. Even if nobody looks, I think the fact that it keeps us aware of it, I think it keeps us on our toes knowing that at any time somebody could come in and take a look at those things. I think it forces us to, uh, you know, to take a take a double, uh, a good double you know, very close look at what we're doing to make sure that we're filling those requirements. And I think that alone is is worth doing. I, I appreciate that um, that side of the argument, and I can't argue with any of those things, but I have some interesting things to say against those. Again, this issue of does anybody come and look at it? Um, I, the stations I've worked at, I get one person has ever come and looked at the public file, and that was the owner's ex-wife. And she wasn't look. She wasn't caring about the radio station. She was just trying to, you know, get something on the guy. Um, the other thing is that it's it, it it's a heck of a liability for getting a fine. For example, if you don't follow the equal opportunity em employment rules, um, if you, and and you know some stations have gotten in trouble for this. Uh, there was a case some years ago with uh, a religious station KFUO in St. Louis, and they wanted to their Christian religious station. They wanted to hire Christians. In that case, I, if I'm not mistaken, went to the Supreme Court. Um, but, uh, the, but they got in trouble because of, of what was or wasn't in their public file. Uh, and then there's, um, uh, if, if you don't just have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, the FCC can make an inspection and can fine you for what is or isn't in your public file. By the way, neatness counts. I have been at my own radio stations when an FCC inspector came in. Asked, said, uh, after he checked a few things, says, all right, let me see your public file. And um, uh, the general manager of the station said, well, sir, it's, it's right over there. I'd be glad to open it for you. He says, no, no, I'll open it. So he, uh, it was actually in a file cabinet. He opens it up, and everything is in tabbed folders that are not handwritten, but they're typed out. It is color-coded by section with a, with a uh, legend in the front as to what each color-coded section meant. The FCC inspector opened it up ran his thumb across it, and he said, my, my, that'll be just fine. 
and close it back up. Well, you know, I, I tell I tell my clients that I do consulting work for that 90, I would say a good 90 to 95% of the time, if your public file and your AS logs look good, that's as far as they're going to look. Because they figure if you've got that stuff covered and you've put paid that much attention to detail, that probably everything else is okay. Uh, one thing, you, you know, that you need to mention in this discussion is there's a big move to uh, going to digital public files, to, to mm -hmm. scanning these things and not keeping them in a filing cabinet anymore. I know uh, our company is discussing that. Uh, you know, just doing everything as PDFs and making it searchable at a workstation or something like that if somebody wants to see them. And that, you know, it, it, you still have to say, have the same amount of documents, but it makes it a whole lot easier because a lot of the documents are filed with the FCC and are available for download. So it kind of takes a little bit of the uh, kind of the paperwork edge off of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris Tobin, you deal with plenty of public files there in New York City, six stations, right? Oh, yes, yes. We, we've got our handful. And we have uh, yeah, PDFs. We put a lot of stuff, uh, the, the emails and letters from folks are now on uh, DVDs in the file. Uh, and we, we have a workstation near the public file cabinets. So if somebody does decide to review, we, we have a medium that they can, uh, they can, a machine they can access for the medium. The, let's see, as Tom pointed out and Chris, I think we've had, well, back in the day when we had the controversial talk shows on a couple of the FMs, Opie and Anthony, but to name a few, uh, <laughs> Howard Stern. We used to get regular visits for the public file inspection. Uh, since those programs have moved on to different forms of broadcasting, those inspections of the public file have diminished considerably. <laughs> so, you know, it, it comes and goes depending, I guess. I guess it's a double-edged sword for stations to have it. Uh, keep you honest. Uh, as we all know, self-governing sometimes doesn't always work. Uh, is it still required oh, to have a um, a list of issues in the uh, in the uh, community that you serve? And uh, yeah, it's the issues and programs list. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So every quarter or so, you're required to um, somehow determine whether it's by polling community leaders or some other method to determine what the issues of the community are, and then what programs you have put on the air to address these issues. Have I got that right? Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, I mean, is that is that is that worthwhile? What 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 do all music stations do except run some uh, public service show that their AM station recorded the week before and they play it back at five thirty Sunday morning? Well, you know, well, the recording I, of it, I I think is uh, is is a good idea to have that in the file because you know, like Chris Tarr said. These these are the public airwaves, um, and there is a regulation. You work. Kind of have to, we kind of have to earn our keep, um, and for a talk station, it's real easy. Um, we're, we're talking issues all all the time, constantly, yeah. uh, local yeah. issues. Um, and every morning, I mean, the producers, like after the morning show, he comes in basically with a ream of paper about what they talked about, and it goes in the file. Ah, so got all that information. And I, I, you know, as a music station, we actually produce. I mean, it does run. It doesn't run at four in the morning. It does run at nine o'clock Sunday mornings. We actually produce a a program for each of our F FM music stations. We bring in people from the public, uh, from the community, to discuss issues. And we again, that's something that we take seriously because you know that we are we're licensed to you know at, at the pleasure of the public. And you know, okay, it's it's a it's little more than a token thing anymore to comply with the law, but at least it's something. And it's it's in in a media market like Milwaukee, uh, you know, some of these these uh, uh, organizations that you, you know that talk about their issues on Sunday morning for an hour, that's their only outlet. They're not going to get on the media anywhere else to talk about what they're going to talk about. So it does still help, and it's still there, and and it's still free to them, and and it's still informational. So I, I think it very much still has a place. Uh, because, you know, it kind of, again, makes us do that. And, and you know, as much as I like to say we're altruistic, we're a business. And sometimes businesses, especially businesses where we're using public facilities, sometimes have to be kind of pushed in the right direction, I think. Someday we're going to have a real interesting discussion about this whole notion of the public airways because you're going to get an argument from me. See, I think... The I, I think the public airwaves should have been treated like uh, land in Oklahoma. You know, okay, uh, here it is. Uh, we'll give out, the, you know, your 40 acres, and uh, you improve it and do what you want. Then you can sell it if you want to or keep it as long as you want. But, hey, that's just me. 
I bet I bet I can get Brian Brush. I bet I get Brian Brushwood on the same network to agree with me, but maybe nobody else. Oh, I bet Dvorak would would agree with that. That's that's the libertarians' view on the public airwaves. But anyway, I digress. But I think that that'll be be a good debate one day. We'll have to do that. You you guys will beat up all over me because I don't I don't know that much about it. And we've been hit with this notion of it's the public airwaves, you know, like it's a national park. Well, it's only valuable because broadcasters made it valuable or because cell phone companies made it valuable or two-way radio or taxi companies or whatever made it valuable. Uh, you know, the, the, the government that doles it out and can take it away at any time, they don't make it valuable. There's See, I, I, could, I, I couldn't disagree with you more because especially <laughs> nowadays – we do a horrible job of serving our communities most of the time. In fact, I think there are there are some days, and and again, my my opinion, I want to be very clear, is different from that of my employers. <laughs> but I, I think you know there are days when we should give it back to the public and let people to actually serve their communities and serve their neighborhoods. And you know, if it weren't for the fact that we have to do something token just to keep uh -huh. doing it, we wouldn't do it at all. So I think very much so because not everybody can do it. I say I, I, my opinion is okay. If you want to do the you know treat it like forty acres, then let everybody do it and fight it out. And well, well and of course, had it been handled that way from the beginning, that's what would have happened. Of course, then you'd have people who would buy up everybody else. And even if you had doled out frequencies in the first place, I mean, back in the twenties or thirties or forties or whenever, like you handed out land uh, during a land rush. I think you'd probably end up with about the same landscape you have now. You'd have a clear channel and you'd have an intercom and you'd have a CBS and then you'd have some mom and pops here and there in places where the clear channels and the CBSs uh, and, and, the, and the cumuluses were just not interested in operating. I think you'd have a situation. Right, but, but on the other hand, if, if, if somebody does something really egregiously bad, at least right now, there's a way to shut them down. That's and I'm saying. I, I would argue that if somebody does something really egregiously bad, they're not going to stay in business. They're, they're, you know, yeah. the, the, uh, the financial support will dry up and, and blow away. Nobody will listen to them, or very few, uh, and advertisers will not support them. Um, and and they can, maybe they can beg all they want for money on, on the air, and if they're really doing something bad, they won't end up having the support. And I can right now name you uh, eight radio stations that I know of that went off the air because the guy that operated them had no clues to what he was doing and operated them very, very badly. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're all off and the frequencies are available to be applied for. In fact, the licenses were withdrawn by the were canceled by the FCC just in the last couple of weeks. Well, they're not available so, to be applied for. You have to auction them and you have to pay for them. And, you ah, know, now there's that whole auction thing. And the, the, there it is, the government going on like they, uh, like they add value to the, to the frequency in the first place. So they have the right to auction it off. Well, that money just goes to supposedly to self-fund. So that, that's not really... Placing a value, perceived value on it. If, if uh, uh, you know, we we've actually had some in Wisconsin here that went up for auction. Nobody bought them. So, but of course, they were in areas nobody really wanted to be in. Yeah, like West Undershirt, Arkansas, or um, yeah, I got you. Hey, the stations that I have in American Samoa, uh, uh, well, one of them. Um, was uh, was a first come first serve, and back in the day before the Telecom Act of '96, when we had first come first serve licenses, that was because somebody was interested. Somebody got it added to the table of allotments, and then nobody's really interested in actually putting down some real money and putting their capital at risk to actually try to build something. And so those stations became first come first serves. And in fact, in my you know, radio career of partial ownership of stations, probably. Six, seven stations have been first come, first serves in places that nobody wanted them, like Dermot, Arkansas. I mean, do you really want a station in Dermot, Arkansas? So, you know, but we add, added some value, sold it, and the next guy that came along, you know, he doesn't have a license anymore because it took care of itself. Anyway, I, I, can, I can tell right now this would be a very good discussion because, Mr. Tar, you do have some good points, and, and you, you take, I think, what is the, the traditional view, and, uh, and it's just traditional because you know, it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, but I just have a have a view that may have a, an alternate setting. Hey, uh, we're going to have to go, guys. We've uh, used up our time and then some, uh, and <laughs> maybe wax too philosophical on, on the show uh, this week in, in Radio Tech. I want to thank, uh, first of all, our sponsors, Netflix, at uh, netflix.com slash twit, T-W-I-T, and get your 30-day free trial. Also, thanks to uh, the folks at, at uh, Axia Audio, axiaaudio.com. Check out the new consoles, the IQ and the radius. Really affordable, fast to install. I've done it myself. It's really quick. Uh, hey, thanks to our um, co-hosts here. Chris Tarr from Muckwanago, Wisconsin. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you very much.
Thanks for having me. Uh, Chris Tobin from Manhattan, the best-dressed engineer in radio. <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. Hey, I might see you in a couple weeks. I'm, I'm thinking about coming up to the city. I'll see you. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, Tom Ray from the Hudson Valley. Thanks, Tom, for being with us. Thanks, Kirk. Always a pleasure. Always fun. And, and maybe I'll see you in a couple weeks. Hey, hey I hope so. Come on, not, come on in for the picnic. See if you can grill some of that duck and possum. <laughs> oh, uh, by the way... Uh, I was yeah, going to say, by the way, anybody who's going to the Dayton Hamvention a week from uh, tomorrow, actually a week from Friday, be looking for me. I'm going to be out there all three days. Oh, okay. Uh, Dayton. The Dayton Hamvention. Oh, yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to, to mention. We'll uh, talk about a bit more in, in future shows, and that is on the Twit Network, uh, there is going to be a new uh, podcast. Uh, it'll be a ham radio show hosted by uh, Bob Heil. Uh, it's supposed to launch on Tuesday, May the 24th, so later on this month. Uh, you're going to uh, get to hear about, if, if you're a ham radio enthusiast, um, you're going to want to check it out with Bob Heil here on the Twit Network. Uh, we'll have more information coming up about that, but I'm eager to uh, participate, participate in, but to hear that show myself. I don't have much to add, but, you know, I sure would like to listen to it. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening and watching. You can catch uh, repeats of the show. You can also download the audio version of the show at twit.tv slash twert. That's hard to say, isn't it? Twit.tv slash T-W-I-R-T, twert. Uh, there's also video versions of the show, high and low bandwidth. Check those out as well. You can subscribe to them also in the uh, in the iTunes store. You get them downloaded automatically. We appreciate you doing that very much. Well, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week on This Week in Radio Tech.